0: Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil.
2: Hello everyone, welcome to the Midweek Show. This week we're doing John Green's interview of Bob Gimlin. This was done around 1992, and it's interesting. We'll we'll get into it in the commentary after the reading. But um, so, Tom, do you want to uh, have something to say before we get this rolling?
1: Yes, absolutely. I just want to say thank you to everybody. We've had a really good year for 2021, and we are looking for an even better year for 2022. If, uh, if you like the show, please like and subscribe and share. Ring the bell. It helps the algorithm. And you can also support the channel with Patreon, and the link is in the description as always.
2: All right, folks. Well, without further ado, stand by. And I think this is uh, Jim Sower's reading, so stand by for that, and that'll kick off in just a moment,
0: and then we'll do our discussion afterwards. Welcome. This interview is being brought to you by William Jevning and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. On October twentieth, 1967, at a place known as Bluff Creek, California, two men captured on film a creature that has been the source of much controversy ever since. There have been many theories and claims regarding this film, some supportive and some claiming hoax. The following interview by John Green of Bob Gimlin on videotape at Gimlin's home in Yakima, Washington in 1992 recounts events in Gimlin's own words. Green This is John Green talking to Bob Gimlin in his home in Yakima, Washington. This is with regard to the movie that Bob and his friend Roger Patterson made 25 years ago in Northern California, Bluff Creek area, but we'll start a little further back than that. Now, you've known Roger for a long time, haven't you? Gimlin. Yes, I knew Roger in the early 1960s. I met Roger about 1958-59. Green. So that was before he got interested in Bigfoot? Gimlin. Yes, I can't recall just exactly when he did start talking to me about Bigfoot, but... It was probably in the early 1960s. Green. Did you go out with him at all, looking into this? Gimlin. Yes, Roger and I had gone out many times in different areas, and over in the Mount St. Helens area, and actually up in this area here, because there was a fellow who said he sighted one, right up here at Cowich Canyon, which is about 20 miles from here. I went up there with Roger on that investigation. "'Of course, we covered as many of them as we could "'when they'd call or somebody would give us a report "'on something that's happening in the area. "'Roger and I rode horseback in the mountains quite a bit "'because I was training the horses at the time. "'Of course, I rode a lot in the mountains, "'and Roger would go along with me, "'and he'd play tapes and talk to me about the creature. "'I was a skeptic in those days. "'I trusted Roger's thoughts and his knowledge.' but I wasn't really convinced that they existed. Green. How did you come to take this particular trip to California? Gimlin. Well, Roger and I had been over in the Mount St. Helens, riding the roads and just more or less going by the lava Rock Caves and things when we came back from there. Well, let's go back a little here. It started raining real heavy over there, and uh, this was in the last part of August, and the first part of September. When we got back to the Yakima area, somebody in California had phoned Roger's wife and left a message that there had been tracks sighted on the new roads that they'd been pushing back into the Bluff Creek area and that they were building logging roads into. So that was the reason that we went into that area. Green. Did Roger usually carry a movie camera with him? Gimlin. Yes, most of the time he had a camera that I can recall. I wasn't much on cameras, but Roger did have a camera, and prior to that, he had been working with a guy up in this area here. That, that's well, when he bought the camera, I knew he had that camera. He usually kept it in his saddlebags on his horse, Green. Well, when you went to California, did you have some definite time you were going to spend there, Gimlin? Yes. Well, we didn't know exactly, because I was working construction at that time, and I was in between jobs, so I said, Yes, I can take off and go down there. I cannot recall the exact amount of time I was going to stay down there with him, but we stayed longer than I planned on staying. In fact, we stayed a week longer than I planned. Green, how long were you there? Gimlin, I think we were down there, California, a total of three weeks. Green, and what were you traveling with? Gimlin, I had a one-ton truck with a horse van on it to haul the animals and all of our equipment. Of course, we took all of our supplies to stay as long as we need to stay, you know, the hay, the grain, our own food, because once we got in there, we never went into town. Green, how many horses did you have? Gimlin, we had three horses, Two saddle horses and a pack horse. I had a saddle horse, and Roger had a saddle horse, and of course we had a small pack horse along. Green. What was Alda Attlee's role in all this? Gimlin. Well, Alda Attlee was Roger Patterson's brother-in-law, and he backed Roger financially with whatever expenses it took to go to these places. He was supposed to help me on some of the expenses, which... I never did receive Green. So you provided the truck and the uh, Gimlin. Yeah, and the fuel and my own horse and my own food. The agreement when we left on any of those investigations was that whatever Roger spent that we would split up on the expenses and with me, but Alda Atley was backing Roger because Roger didn't have a job at that particular time. Green. "'So, in fact, he only financed Roger. "'He didn't finance your share at all?' "'Gimlin.' "'No, he didn't finance my part of the trip at all. "'I had my own horse, my own equipment, and my own food. "'I didn't expect somebody else to support me on that. "'It would have been nice if I could have gotten part of the fuel and expenses on the truck.' "'Green.' "'So you went into an area where you heard that tracks had been seen fairly recently?' Gimlin. Yes, just prior to the time we had gotten there. They had sighted tracks on that Tuesday after being off over the Labor Day weekend. It had also started raining all up and down the west coast. By the time we got down there, these tracks supposedly were three different sizes, and they were just, well, globs in the mud as far as I was concerned. We couldn't get any plaster cast definition of them at all. Green. I never realized that you went down there for that specific set of tracks, Gimlin. Yes, that's the reason we went into that area. I wasn't real anxious to go down there because you know, I needed to go back to work, but Roger kept saying these guys were pretty good down in that area. I can't remember the fellow's name that, uh, that called up here. Green. Probably Al Hogson. Gimlin. Yeah, that was, a, that was it. It's uh, Al Hogson. But there was somebody else who had called Roger, too, a guy that worked for the Forest Service. Green. Sill McCoy, maybe? Gimlin. Yes, I think that was his name. Yeah, McCoy. Something like that. Of course, it took me a while around here to get things ready so my wife could do my chores, because I had animals at that time. And to be able to feed them and take care of them, to be gone that long, why... I had to make provisions for her to take care of the animals. Green. That was interesting, because, uh, well, I was there. I saw those tracks that you're referring to. When I was there, Al Hoxson told me that he was expecting Roger. Well, maybe he'd called him already by then. Gimlin. Yeah, may have. Green. I took that to mean that Roger already had a trip there planned before that. Gimlin. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I don't recall whether he had a trip planned prior to the call or not. In fact, I don't think he did. Like I said, we'd been in the Mount St. Helens area, and when I came back here, I was going to go back to work in two weeks. Then I talked to him, Roger, again. We said that we were kind of in between jobs, so we can take a couple weeks off. And that's mainly the reason I went down and Roger went with me, because it was my equipment green. So what did you do when you got there? Gimlin. Well, first we set up camp, of course. Then the way we do is just ride the roads. When these guys were working on the roads with bulldozers and everything, as quick as they'd quit working, we'd ride up and down in that area and search for tracks or whatever we'd run into. Then we would take the one-ton pickup truck and when the equipment's off the road, so We'd drive the roads. We would drive the roads at night real slow, looking for tracks crossing the road. Of course, in the daytime, we couldn't drive on the roads because they were working on the roads up in there. They had started logging in some areas, and the logging trucks had started coming down from there. we covered as many miles as we could with the amount of time that we had. We could only go out so far, and we had to go back to camp. I mean... We did ride back to camp and use the truck to drive the roads at night. Green. What happened on this particular day? Gimlin. The day we got the film footage, I left early in the morning and Roger slept in. I just rode out and around. I always got up early and so I rode on out. My horse loosened a shoe and I came back in to tack the shoe on tighter. About ten o'clock, mid-morning or so. I sat around there for a little while because Roger was gone when I got back. Supposedly, he had gone down the creek there, uh, Bluff Creek there, and after a while, he came back and asked what area I had covered that morning. I told him, and he says, Well, why don't we ride up into this area we had ridden into before, a desolate-type area down a couple of canyons. There's a creek running through it. So we went ahead and fixed lunch, And he said, well, let's get our gear together so when we ride out we can stay if we have to and stay a little bit later into the night if we need to. Well, we packed up the pack horse and it was about midday, perhaps a little bit after noon time when we went around this bend in the creek bed. There was a fallen tree and as we came around it there was this creature standing by the creek. That's when everything started happening. The horses started jumping around raising the devil and spooked from this creature. Well, Roger, well, his horse was rearing up and jumping around. He slid off him, got his camera out in the saddlebag, and uh, he started trying to get pictures of this creature as it was walking away. The film footage that you see, the Patterson film, is what was acquired from that particular sighting in the few seconds that we had to take pictures with. And then Roger ran out of film in the camera, The reason for him running out of film was as we were riding up there, we just took our time and fooled around. It was in the fall of the year. The maple trees were turning red, and it was kind of pretty, and Roger was taking pictures of me riding up the canyons, pictures of the trees, and photographing the surrounding areas. So when this all happened, we didn't have much film left in the camera, unfortunately. Some of us kind of blurry because he was running across a creek to get a better view, a closer view of the creature in a better way and get more pictures of it. When he did run out of film, well naturally it was one of those old cameras that he had to get under a poncho to change the film. We went to catch his horse and the pack horse because I kept my horse under control. I had my horse with me all the time, so we caught his horse, got the new film out of the saddlebags, He got under his old poncho and changed the film around. Then we tried to track the creature on up from where we'd just seen it. He didn't have much luck doing it. Then we decided it was getting late in the afternoon. In that area, that time of year, the sun goes down about 3.30 or 4 o'clock. We wanted to get back and take plaster casts of the tracks and then go on into town to see if we had anything on film. We weren't sure from Roger stumbling and falling on the sandbar and getting up and running. We didn't even have an idea that we had anything on film at that time. In fact, it was doubtful that we did have anything. Green. So you cast the tracks the same day? Gimlin. Yes, we did. In fact, right that afternoon. By the time we got the tracks cast and the different deals that we did to cast the tracks done, well, it was getting late. It was almost dark by the time we got back to the truck and got the horses fed and tied up. By the time we got into town at Al Hogson's store, it was good and dark. I imagine it was oh, about eight thirty, nine o'clock. Then we went on over to oh, whatever town that was to mail the film up to Al DiAtli, Roger's brother-in-law, so he could take it and get it developed to see if there was really anything on the film. Okay, I'll uh, go back a little bit to the casting of the tracks. I rode the big horse. The horse that I was riding was around twelve, thirteen hundred 1,300 pounds. I rode him alongside the tracks with this new film in the camera. Roger took pictures of how deep the horse's prints were in the soil compared to the creature's tracks. Then I got up on a stump, which was approximately 3 to 4 feet, you know. We didn't measure it. Probably should have. Anyway, I jumped off with a high-heeled boot as close to the track as we could. Then we took pictures of that to illustrate the depth that my footprint went into the same dirt with the high-heeled cowboy boot, and, well, at that time, I weighed 165 pounds. These were all things that we did prior to leaving the scene. It was a good thing we did, because that night, when we came back, of course, we were pretty excited about just seeing it and We sat there and talked about it until 12.30 or 1 o'clock in the morning. Around 5.30 a.m. or so, it started raining, and it was just a pouring down rain. I told Roger we'd better get up there and do something about the tracks, or they'd wash out. And he said, no, it'd stop raining after a while. Well, I went on ahead and got up put the saddle on my horse and decided I'd ride up there while it was raining really hard. And Roger says, ah, it'll quit, don't ride up there. I said, No, I'm going to go ahead and ride on up there. Well, I'd gotten a couple of cardboard boxes for Mr. Hawkson to cover up these tracks the night before, so I went outside to get the couple of boxes that we'd folded up out there. They were just soggy old pieces of cardboard. I disregarded taking those back up there, so I rode back up to the scene, pulled some bark off some trees, and covered up the tracks as best I could, and and went back to camp by then we decided it wasn't going to quit raining the little creek that was 6 or 7 feet across was now 10 or 12 feet across and 4 feet deep we were on the side of the creek which had to be crossed with a truck to get out to the main road I said well I'm going to go ahead and get across the creek with the truck and get started out and of course Roger thought it would stop raining and he suggested I leave him there and come back and pick him up well, in the meantime, why uh, they had called the track dog people in Canada, and they were supposed to come down. I think they also phoned you, Mr. Green, and de DeHinden. I'm not sure when all that happened, but I do remember the people in Canada had been called with the track dogs to come on down to see if we could track it up through the mountains from where we last saw it. Green. Yeah, I think it was B.C. Museum that called, because... That was the people who phoned me. Gimlin. Was that it? Oh, I I couldn't recall just exactly how that went. Green. A man from the museum had come down with me at the beginning of September, come down after I was there and told them the tracks were there. Gimlin. Oh, was that it? Okay, well, I don't remember just exactly how those sequences happened. Green. Yes, well... "'It was from him I learned of the movie. "'The call must have gone to the museum.' "'Gimlin.'
1: "'Must have.
0: Yeah. Well, Roger didn't do that. "'I think it was Al Hogson. "'I think Roger had talked to him about the calling. "'Well, they had talked about it, "'but I was not present at the time they did.' "'Green.' "'About how far was it from your camp to, where this, uh, Gimlin?' "'Oh, a calculated guess. I think it was about four miles.' Green, that movie you took, comparing the depths of the tracks, that would be the one that you showed the University of British Columbia? Gimlin, yes, that's the one showed in British Columbia. Green, are you aware that that movie has been missing almost ever since? Gimlin, yes, I am aware of that. I asked before Roger passed away, and his reply was that Alda Attlee had that somewhere. He didn't tell me exactly where. Roger said that Al has the film in his possession somewhere. Of course, I asked Al Atley about it, and he denied having it and denied it ever existed. That seems strange to me, because I knew it existed, and Roger knew it existed. Green. And so did all the people at the University of British Columbia, eh? Gimlin. Exactly. See, so why the film disappeared... I'll never know and probably never find out. Green, sounds almost as if Al lost it. Gimlin, yeah, or sold it. Who knows what happened to it? Green, well, you'd think if it had been sold, it would have shown up sometime. Gimlin, well, you know Al and Roger toured with that film afterwards, and it's hard telling what went on in those days. And, of course, Roger made some deal with American National, which... I never did know. Green. But you know Rene DeHinden and I were the first people to make a deal for the use of the film itself. Al brought to Seattle the film of the creature, and a great deal of footage of that Roger had taken of the waterfalls and the trees and various things like that. The footprint film was supposed to be there, but it wasn't. Gimlin. Was it supposed to be on the same roll of film? Green. Oh, no. Gimlin. It was just a different roll of film then, eh? Green. Well, I don't remember now if he brought it uh, in a lot of little boxes or whether the film had already been spliced. Gimlin. Yeah, I see. Green. Green. But anyway, we showed it expecting to find the footprint film, but it wasn't there. Gimlin. Yes, but... As I didn't know much about movie cameras or splicing film or any of that sort of thing, well, anybody could have shown me the film, and I wouldn't have been able to detect a splice, except I knew what was taken. We all saw it, you know? Of course, the film footage of the creature wasn't that good, but the other footage was plain. It was taken during the sunlight hours, and I thought it was good film. I don't know what you guys thought about it, but I thought it was a pretty good film. Green, oh yes, as I remember, I only saw it once, but it was perfectly clear, I thought. Gimlin, well, I saw it at the same time you guys did. I don't really recall everything that happened way back then now, but, uh, of course, there's a lot of speculation at the time, and Roger and Al had big dollar signs in their eyes, you know. They were just going to go here and go there, and, well, we did travel a lot with that film. There was a lot of money spent. Of course, Argosy bought one article at that particular time. I think it was the fall of 1967. Argosy bought the article. After that, Alan Roger traveled with the film and promoted it somewhat. That was about the time I went back to work because I didn't have any income. They just kind of cut me out completely of the thing. It took me forever to, well, you know, kind of break even. After Roger died, I had to go to court to get any rights and all out of it, which, you know, was kind of an odd thing. But between Mrs. Patterson's attorney and her, it was a deal where they did not recognize that I had any interest at all in the film. At one time, I was supposed to be one-third partner on everything that happened, if there was money coming in, but then that all changed. The film itself? Now, maybe Al lost it. I really don't know what happened to that film footage where Roger and I took film of the tracks, and my boot tracks, and the horses, and so forth. Green. Remember how deep the horse tracks were compared to that of the Sasquatch tracks? Gimlin. Well, the horse tracks were not as deep as the Sasquatch tracks, of course. I just walked the horse through. I walked him as slow as I could, but you figure he was distributing his weight on four feet. The tracks were better than half as deep, but they weren't as deep as the tracks of the creature. Green. But the area of the four hoof prints wouldn't be any greater than two of those footprints, would it? Gimlin. No. No, the hoof print area, if you're familiar with sizes of horse's hoof prints, well, the horse wore a size one shoe, which is not quite six inches in diameter, probably more like five inches in diameter with a number one shoe on the front foot. The shoes were a little smaller on the back feet. They were size ones trimmed down is what they were. Of course, I rode the horse too, so there was my extra weight plus the horse's weight, plus the saddle and the tack and everything I had on him. There was probably a total weight of about, you know, 1,400 pounds. Green. How about when you jumped off the stump? Gimlin. Now, when I jumped off the stump with a high-heeled boot in the dirt, the footprint went almost as deep as the creature's footprint. We didn't exactly measure. We didn't have a ruler. We just took pictures of it. Viewing it, the film, you could actually tell better for depth. By looking at it and making a judgment on the side of it, it wasn't as deep as the creature's footprint. They weren't exactly side-by-side, either. They were probably two or three feet between my track and the creature's track, but there was some distance between them. The soil was practically the same. That soil had all been washed in there from the flood a year prior. There could have been some variation in the soil. We really didn't get into it that deep. It was a thing where well, we were pretty excited about it and all, and there was a time element there to get all these things done before dark. GREEN You know when you walked around the tracks, when you took that movie, your boot tracks were there too, weren't they? Gimlin. Yes, right. We walked around it quite a bit, trying to stay out of the tracks as much as possible. Green. But still, you would have been close then. Gimlin. Oh yeah, just walking. We were close, but the boot prints lacked a whole lot going as deep. Considerable amount going as deep as the creature's tracks were. Green. Going back now to what happened when you first saw the creature, how did it come into view? Gimlin. You mean when we first saw it, John? Green. Did you come around a corner, or did you see it from a distance, or... Gimlin. No, it wasn't exactly a corner. We came around a bend. We were riding the creek beds, is what we were doing, and so when we came around the bend in the creek, this thing was standing alongside the creek standing there upright. We were about 60 to 80 feet away from it when we first saw it. Then, at different times, we were different distances from it. At one time, I was probably as close as 60 feet to it when I rode across the creek and got off my horse. When Roger ran across the creek, well, the thing immediately started walking away. Then, whenever it was that the horses started spooking and throwing fits, well, the commotion started, and the creature just started walking away. Green. So it was standing when you first saw it? Gimlin. Yeah, it was standing still, right at the edge of the creek when we first saw it. Yes. Green. Right at the edge? Gimlin. Right by the edge of the creek? Yes. Green. But fully upright? Gimlin. Fully upright? Standing upright? Yes. Green. Green. What exactly did the horses do? Gimlin. Well, Roger was in the front, and his horse tried to spin around and come back. I was in riding behind him on the big horse, leading the pack horse along. My horse was kind of spooky, but not near as bad as Roger's horse. Roger's horse was a spooky little horse. Uh, he was young. And uh, the horse I was riding was an older cow horse, been roped on and used for a lot of things. "'Roger's horse threw all kinds of fits, "'and when Roger got off the horse, "'he ran off, and the pack-horse jerked free from me "'and ran off back down the way we came. "'Green, did Roger's horse buck? "'Gimlin, no, it never did buck, "'just reared and jumped all around. "'His horse was in front of me, "'and, of course, I wasn't looking straight at him all the time. "'This all happened in a couple of heartbeats, you know. "'It happened fast. "'Green, but then Roger's horse didn't go down?' Gimlin, no, it didn't fall down, just reared up is all. Green, well, because this has been said since, you know, that Roger's horse fell down. Gimlin, no, no, his horse never did fall down, no. Green, okay, well, that's interesting. So, did he get the camera while he was still on the horse? Gimlin, yes, while he was stepping down off the horse. Um, well, A lot of people have asked me about that and they probably don't realize the agility that Roger had. He was a tremendous athlete. Roger had tremendous agility. He had been a rodeo rider, and did gymnastics, and this wasn't a full-size horse Roger was riding either. It was a pony, a small horse. Green. Yeah, I've seen those little horses. He used to haul them in a Volkswagen bus. Gimlin. Yeah, we used to haul two of them in a VW bus. Roger rode these horses because they were easy to get on and off, and because Roger wasn't a very big man. So actually, when he was getting off his horse, he always kept that saddlebag ready. The saddlebag had two flaps on it to keep it buckled down. He kept one buckled and one of them unbuckled so he could get into his camera in the event that he needed it in a hurry. And this was the case at that particular time. Green. So... He practiced getting the camera out of the saddlebags in a hurry? Gimlin. Oh, yeah, lots of times. Yes, he did. That was his theory, uh, that if he ever had to get it, um, keep one buckle on there so that it would not bounce out while he was riding, and the other one loose so he could get it out in a hurry. Green. Did Roger have a gun at all? Gimlin. Yeah. Roger had a three-o-three British rifle in his saddle scabbard and "'I had a thirty .30-06 rifle in my saddle scabbard.' "'Green, did you have any expectation that you might see one?' "'Gimlin, no. I surely didn't. "'I don't think Roger did, either. "'We always carried rifles with us when we went into the mountains. "'At least I always did, and I'm sure Roger did, too.' "'Green, had you discussed whether you would shoot "'at one of these creatures if you saw one?' "'Gimlin, yes, many times.' We had talked about it, but decided unless it was necessary, we would never shoot. In other words, unless it was violent or attempted to attack us or something in that sense of the word, you know? Green. So when Roger was off his horse and ran after the creature with the camera, what did you do? Gimlin. Well, Roger said, cover me, as he pulled the camera out. Well, if they don't understand what that means, well, he didn't have any protection, just the camera in his hand— and in case something were to happen. Well, what I did was ride across the creek, pull my rifle out of the scabbard, step down off the horse, and just stood there with my rifle. I never raised the rifle like I'd shoot or anything like that, just held it in my hand, and with the other hand I held my horse to keep him from getting away from me. Green. So there was never a gun pointed at the creature? Gimlin. No, never. I didn't point the rifle at the creature. Green, did you ever feel like the creature was acting at all threatening? Gimlin, no, it kept walking away all the time. It turned and looked around once at Roger and once at me. The first time it turned and looked was the time that I rode across the creek. I was off to its right, behind it, and that is when it made one turn with its head. Then Roger relocated himself on a log, steadying the camera at one time, Then, when he ran to another position to get a better view and a better picture, the creature turned its head a second time, and I assume it was looking at Roger. When you view the film, I never could really decide whether it turned to look at me or Roger, because all these things happened tremendously fast, and I was trying to hold on to my horse and a rifle at the same time and also keep an eye on the creature and Roger. Green, do you have much of a mental image now?' of what you saw as opposed to what you saw in the movie since that time? Gimlin. Well, I don't think that has changed much. Yes, I still have a mental image of what really happened that day. There may be a few things that I've overlooked or forgotten over the years, but basically the time of the day and how the thing moved and what we did is pretty much still in my mind, pretty exactly in my mind, because even though we were excited... You never seem to forget those things. Green. When you first saw it, how big did you think it was, Bob? Gimlin. Well, I thought it was about six and a half feet tall, and I would have guessed it weighed you 250, 300 pounds. It did have tremendous muscle bulk. This was an estimated guess at the time, of course. I'm not used to seeing things like that. I was just guessing weight compared to the amount of muscle quarter-horses have. It was as big as a quarter-horse, naturally, and the height because we were up on our horses at the time we first saw the creature. Therefore, it probably didn't look as tall as it really was. Now, the horse I was riding was a sixteen-hand horse. One hand is four inches on a horse. My horse was sixteen hands tall, plus my saddle. That would make him approximately 16 and a half hands high. Now, of course, with me sitting up there, you can figure me eye level was about 9 feet high. So anything actually less than 9 feet, you'd be looking down on it. Green. Was it obvious whether it was a male or female? Gimlin. Well, it appeared to be a female, but, you know, I had never seen one. I had never even seen a track until that day, so I couldn't even make a statement whether it was male or female, but the film indicates that it had mammary glands, so we assumed it was a female. Now, they had told us that the tracks they had found in the road were three different sizes. We talked about that at length and discussed it and assumed that well, there was a male, a female, and a younger one with those three different sized tracks, so our first assumption was it was a female. Green. What color did it appear to be to you? Gimlin. Uh, It was dark brown, brownish color. Green. Then it wasn't as dark as it looks in the film? Gimlin. No, it wasn't as dark as it looks in the film. Uh, It was a long ways from being tan, but it wasn't a very dark brown like it shows in the film. It was a lighter color brown. Of course, it was lighter in different areas of his body, too. I suppose there were the, where the hair is shorter, it was lighter, and vice versa. It might have been darker where the hair was shorter. Green. Can you remember details on his face? Gimlin. Yes, I can. The face would have a flat type nose. The lips—I oh, can't really remember what the lips looked like, except it did have lips, and we could see its teeth. "'The eyes were large eyes, but not big, round eyes like a horse or a cow, "'but they were large eyes. "'The hair on its face was short. "'There wasn't a whole lot of hair around its cheeks "'and down along the side of its face. "'Best I can remember is the face didn't have a whole lot of hair on it. "'Green. "'What would the skin color be then?' "'Gimlin. "'It seemed like it was a brownish color, Skin. "'Green. "'Was it doing anything with its hands?' "'Gimlin.' You mean, uh, Green, well, in the film, they were just swinging. Gimlin, well, John, that is all I ever saw. Uh, it never raised its arms or anything, to that effect. It just walked with an easy, tight motion away from us and swung its arms like a human being. The best I can remember is the hands were about the same color as the face. Green, the bottoms of its feet looked quite light-colored, but that could be the sand. Gimlin, Yeah, I think that was the case. The sand wasn't a white sand. It was kind of a funny type soil there where the creature walked, and it was lighter colored dirt. I think you can remember the color of the soil, John. Green. Oh, yeah. Gimlin. It was pretty light colored soil in there, and might have been why the soles of the feet looked light in the film footage. Green. In the movie, it hasn't quite disappeared when the picture stops because... It looks as if it's about to disappear behind a big pile of, well, it looked like a stump or a pile of wood or of some kind, Gimlin. Yeah, it hadn't disappeared when the film footage, uh, well, when Roger ran out of film, because it traveled on, oh, probably not half again the distance of where he, but another 30 or 40 yards. There was some trees down in that area, I suppose from the flood and so forth, There were many fallen trees and different things in that area. Then when the creature did disappear up a little draw, why I wanted to follow it. Of course, Roger didn't want to follow it because he was on foot and he didn't want to be left there. We thought there was possibility there were two others around. We didn't know at the time whether that was one of the ones that had made the tracks up above the scene or not. Roger was a little bit upset about that, so he wanted to catch his horse and get some more film in the camera. It took quite a while to catch the horse, and to catch the catch horse as well, and tie them up. Then we rode on in pursuit of the creature. Now see, the way it went to see if we could see more tracks, or I don't know, I thought maybe we could see this creature again. I don't really know why I was thinking that. We never did see it again, but... We saw saw the scuffs in the gravel and in the creek bed where that indicated where it possibly ran when it went out of sight. We measured 68 to 72 inches in the stride, which was not even close to accurate, because it was, as I have said, just scuffs in the gravel. Then we tracked on up the creek bed quite a ways. We saw one wet half of a footprint on a rock as it went up into the mountains, that was as far as it went with it. Green. So there wasn't sand to show footprints beyond where you saw it? Gimlin. No, it was gravel mostly. But there was sand and dirt where it went across the creek, but it never left a footprint in the sand or in the dirt or soil. It did leave a wet mark on the rock in the creek where it went across and went on into the hills from there. Green. Were you ever close to it? Closer to it than Roger was when he took the pictures? Gimlin. Yeah, I was. When I rode across the creek and got off my horse, I was closer than Roger was with the camera at the time. I rode fairly close to the creature. Green. And I suppose Roger wouldn't have had much of a look at it because, well, he was looking through the lens of the camera all the time? Gimlin. Well, yes, I feel that I had a better look at it. We talked about it, like I said, when we got back to the camp that night. We stayed up and talked about it for hours. You know, talked about what each one of us had seen. There was things that I had seen about the creature that Roger didn't. Of course, he couldn't see it too well, because he was looking through that camera. Green. When you got off the horse, what size did it appear to be then? Gimlin. Well, to be plumb honest with you, I didn't even think about sizes at the time it was going away. It was large, but I never gave any thought to how high it was or how heavy it was, because when it was moving away from me, that was about all that was in my mind at that time, that this creature was of no threat to us, and, oh yeah, I was trying to keep my horse under control, because, you know, I never had any idea what might happen, and I sure didn't want to be on foot." So I knew I could get back on my horse, and maybe if I had to, well, if I had to, if I had to shoot it and it didn't go down, well, I could get on my horse and I could get out of there, and Roger would have to fend for himself. I'm not a coward, but I'll be darned if I was going to stick around if this creature got violent, you know? So I was concentrating on keeping my rifle in my hand and my horse under control. Green. Well, there is, of course, this widespread opinion that it was uh, some kind of masquerade having the film. Of course, there is a certain amount of blurring and a certain amount of underexposure of the creature itself. You can't see the face, for instance. You had a much better look at it than that. What was your impression? Gimlin. My impression is that there is a creature, and I don't feel it was a man in a suit. If it had to be a man in a suit, well, I don't know how they would have gotten him back there into that particular area. I have heard this story and thought about it many times. God, at one point with the film circulating all around and people criticizing, I was almost to the point of not even being sure myself. But I thought about it all these years and I'm quite sure it wasn't a man in a suit. I saw the face. I saw the expression on its face. With all the muscles and arms and legs. I don't know how it could have been a man in a suit. Plus, I never had anything to do with a man in a suit, and, well, if Roger did, how would he know that I wouldn't shoot it? In my opinion, that creature was not a man in a suit. Green. Could you see the muscles move when it walked? Gimlin. Yes. I could see the muscles clearly, and that was one of the deciding factors, in my opinion, that It was no man in a suit. The thighs, the buttocks, the arms and shoulders, well, you could see it move clearly underneath the hair. Green, you had estimated this thing to weigh a great deal less than the horse, and yet the footprints were deeper. What explanation could you think of? Gimlin, well, you asked my estimation when I first saw it. Green, no, no, but... Gimlin, oh, you mean afterwards? Well, God, John, there was no way of really knowing. We knew it had to be heavier than it appeared to be when we first saw it. Of course, we thought the horse's weight was distributed on four feet, and I'm not good with the mathematics of such things, but uh, if you figure 1,400 pounds of horse distributed on four feet, that'd be mm, 350, 400 pounds. So we figured it must have weighed much more than we originally figured. "'Of course, Roger did some research "'by going over to the zoo in Seattle, "'watched the gorillas there "'and asked how much they weighed and so forth. "'They had one over there named Bobo, "'and I don't remember his weight exactly, "'but I do remember he weighed more than it looked "'like it weighed. "'Green. "'Yes, I did the same thing with those gorillas. "'Gimlin. "'Uh-huh. "'Green. "'And there was a female gorilla there "'that was quite small but was tremendously heavy.' Gimlin, yeah, John, that is what Roger was telling me. I wasn't all that interested at the time, whatever it was, you know. In the end, it probably weighed approximately 500 pounds to make such tracks in th- that deep in the dirt. Of course, when it walked, you kicked up a certain amount of dirt from the pressure of the toes pushing it away. Green, well... It would have to distribute the weight on different parts of the foot when it walked, otherwise, there's no way it could have made a deeper print than of the horse. Gimlin. Yeah, that's right. Green. If its feet were put down flat, each foot would have had, oh, an area as big as three of the horse's feet. Gimlin. Yes. Green. You would have to roll that imprint in some way or another. Gimlin. Yeah, right. Green, so when you saw it, up until that moment, you had never seen a track? Gimlin, never. Never seen a track at all. That's right. Green, and you weren't all convinced that there were any such animals to be seen? Gimlin, that is true. I was not convinced that they really existed. You know, I figure Roger must have had a reason. He showed me plaster casts, and I heard different stories from people who had seen them. So I thought, well, maybe there is something to this, but I just didn't believe in them, basically. Didn't believe it was possible that they could exist. Even after we got the film, many people said, ah, they don't exist, and still people tell me it's a bunch of malarkey, you know? There will always be a certain amount of people you just can't convince lest they see one. Green. Well, when you did see it, There wasn't any doubt that you were looking at an animal, was there? Gimlin. There's no doubt in my mind at all. Green. Well, okay. That ought to do it, Bob. Thanks a lot, Gimlin. You're quite welcome, John. That's the end of the interview. Thank you for listening.
2: Well, I hope everyone enjoyed that. The first thing I wanted to mention was that Bob Gimlin... Everyone has said for years that he's probably the most honest person. You'll ever come across and that was including, you know, John Green and Renee de Hinden He didn't really have anything to gain from the whole film thing whole Patterson film and He didn't even really talk about this. Um, I spoke with him a couple times on the phone I guess it was 2002 or 2003 and I was uh, in fact it was for uh, I was asking him to do an interview so I could include that in my first book. And he told me that he didn't do interviews anymore. And in fact, green and and there were very select interviews that he did do because he knew those people. When it come to talking about all that, he felt left out really badly. So because, you know, Patterson and, and everybody involved in the film after the fact, you know, sort of took off with it. They kind of left him in the dust. So he was kind of bitter and didn't talk about it for, geez, I'm one of the few people that probably talked him into doing, you know, going out public and talking and, and I'm glad he did, you know, he deserved it. And I told him so. So, um, this interview he did, like I said in in 92 and I talked to him probably 10 years later and, and was one of the people that probably helped convince him to come out and talk about it publicly. But the point is up to that point, he had absolutely nothing to gain by going out and, and sticking to his guns on his part of the story. Tom, what are your thoughts?
1: Absolutely. You know, and i got to say, I've, I've looked at so many interviews um, with with Bob Giblin over the years, and, you know, the guy just strikes me 100% as a gentleman's gentleman. He really is a man of integrity. He has nothing to gain. You know, we interviewed uh, Doug Hichak, uh about a year ago, maybe a little over a year ago, and even Doug, Doug had, um, he had authorization to offer Bob Gimlin a million dollars if Bob would come out and just say, hey, yeah, guess what? It was it was a hoax. And Bob didn't even bat an eye. He just said, you know, I, I'd love to take your money, but here, let me tell you what really happened. And And he was just that kind of a guy. He really was. I've never talked to him personally. I've talked to his wife <clears throat> briefly. But. Um, you know, he's he just really is a just a real stand-up person and a real man of uh, great integrity and good character.
2: You know, he and Patterson were friends, regardless of what, And I've had plenty of people tell me, you know, that that are against the film and don't believe it, and claims that Patterson was some kind of a crook or whatever. And I mean, there's just a whole lot of stuff out there. So, but you have to kind of take. Bob Gimlin's interview for what it is and the fact that the guy, like you said, he, he was offered by Doug Highcheck a million dollars and they were good for it and he couldn't take it because the story was real. And Bob's the kind of a guy that he was there around Patterson a lot, not just at bluff Creek, you know, on that particular occasion, but in the many trips that they went in Washington state and elsewhere. So if there were any kind of shenanigans. Bob would have said something.
1: Yeah, it's a real good point. Yeah. Um, And I was looking at the interview with John Green, and this is, you know, there's a whole lot of really excellent points in there. One of them was Green asked him, he says, was it obvious whether it was a male or a female? And Gimlin said, well, it appeared to be a female, but you know, I've never seen one. Well, that's, (laughs) Um, yeah, good point. (laughs) Yeah, and he'd never seen a track until that day. So... You know again he's just very open candid honest um and we've talked about it and it's been discussed just an awful lot about the fact that patty was a female and if excuse me if you're going to fake this thing why would you go to the extra effort of you know making it and and they didn't even know who would have known because uh know chimps and gorillas don't have the uh, you know the the large breasts like that so who would have known to have done that
2: yeah I mean and I know somebody I can't remember who it was they thought that um, oh because there was a sketch in Patterson's book now Patterson published his book do abominable snowmen of America really exist in 1966 that was two years before John Green published on on the track of the Sasquatch in 1968 but there's some pictures in there and they're all sketches and the one sketch and I, I wished I could remember who brought this up But they said oh well, you know Patterson probably come up with the idea of a female Sasquatch because he had already uh, Had this sketch in his book of a female, you know with breasts but whoever whoever it was that brought that up uh, apparently didn't realize that that sketch came from Ivan Sanderson's book and It was something that, you know, Patterson just used in his book. It had nothing to do, you know, Patterson did not sketch that drawing. Uh, It was just something he borrowed from Sanderson's book. And I I can't remember call offhand where Sanderson got the sketch, but, so that's that. Uh, But yeah, you're right. And they didn't have the money. I mean, his, uh, his brother-in-law, Al D'Atley, as Bob stated in there, he's the one that often uh, finance now financing doesn't mean thousands of dollars. When I, I spoke to Mrs. Patterson a few times, and I asked her point blank, I said, "Well, now Roger didn't have a lot of money, did he?" And she says, "No. Typically, it was twenty or thirty dollars here and there, by friends and family, just to give him enough money for gas and other things." Now, on today's standards, twenty or thirty bucks wouldn't get you very much, but I remember as a kid back in the late '60s, and I'll give you an example: our family friend Charlie. know we'd usually go on these little overnight fishing trips and what he would do is he'd take he had what he called these little junk box right and it was just some fishing stuff and then um like a a, a stick of butter and i can't remember what all was there wasn't a whole lot in there maybe salt and pepper things like that because what we would do in span pancake flour because we would go out and catch our breakfast and have pancakes with it right on the right on the river so uh and for you know, back in those days, gas wasn't real expensive. So I think he'd take about 10 bucks. That was our, that was our fishing trip. And and it was pretty comfortable. So if Patterson had 20 or $30 to, you know, throw in his gas tank, they had horses. I mean, they weren't doing a lot of driving around. They would drive to a point and then they'd ride their horses. That was plenty of money to fund those kind of trips.
1: Well, do you remember the gas embargo? I think it was in 76 or 77. Right. And and that was the first time gas started going above i mean it, it was it'd be ridiculous to be even a it's nowhere near a dollar a gallon oh. i remember
2: i was in the army 1980 when it hit a dollar and i swear i wasn't going to buy any more gas
1: <laughs> right
2: but yeah i can remember you know when i was probably oh geez i don't know 12 13 years old my brother-in-law giving me a quarter and taking a gas can and walking down to the gas station and filling up the gas can is still having a few cents left over. Right. <laughs> we're, we're really dating ourselves here. Will. I know, I know, but <laughs> you know, to put yourself in the, in the mindset of that time period. So yeah, yeah. I mean, his brother-in-law, like, like Mrs. Patterson said, other family and friends did the same thing. They would, they would help him out with a few bucks here and there. You know, at the time I, I recall that him and Gimlin were construction workers, you know, so that's kind of on and off work. In fact, that's what they had the time to go down there because they were between jobs, so they had the time to go to Bluff Creek, and that, of course, that trip was based off from uh, a logging crew finding tracks—three sets of tracks.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that I—I I mean, there's a lot of, like I said, a lot of points here, but one of them is uh, Green says, "Well, what what color was the creature, and what color what color did it appear to be to you?" And, and Gimlin said, "Well, it was a dark brown, a brownish color." What do we hear? You know, the majority of the Bigfoot sightings, not all of them, but, you know, most of them are a brownish, like a cinnamon brown or a mm-hmm. dark cinnamon. And Green said, then it wasn't as dark as it looks on the film. said, no, it wasn't as dark as it looks on the film. That's right. Who would have known? Yeah, back then, if they were faking it, and then, you know, down the road, it turns out, well, gosh, you yeah, these things are never brown. <laughs>
2: exactly but it is and you know there were enough stories floating around then especially in that area where they could have gotten you know if they were going to fake something they would have maybe made it the coloration that was being reported that cinnamon brown color and when gimlin said no it was actually lighter in color than what you see in the film that was pretty revealing
1: yeah it really was
2: you know, the claims of people saying, oh, you know, these guys were in there hoaxing and there was other people with them. And I knew this before, that there were the road crews up there working because he states in there quite clearly that they would have to wait until the dozers and, and other equipment and log trucks, etc., were done before they could go up there and check for tracks crossing the roads.
1: You know, and it kind of goes to um, when people s- say to me, well, you know, These things don't really exist, and you know you you know what I'm talking about. The people Mm -hmm. that are just dogmatic and they're they're scoffers and debunkers. And if you give them new information that's credible, it it means nothing. You know they just want to hold their position. So my response is, tell you what, what are you doing tonight? About one (laughs) thirty? Oh, well, you're just gonna have some guy out there in a monkey suit. I go, you know, I could. I could do that. Then I've got to go out. I have no idea where to buy a monkey suit, so I got to find somebody to someplace to rent a monkey suit. I got to get somebody, probably pay him to go out there in the woods in the monkey suit. And I'm going to let you choose. I'm going to give you an area, but you choose the precise location. So somehow I got to get the man in the monkey suit. And then at the end of the day, what you're going to see and you'll know it immediately is a man in a monkey suit. Right. Or I got better idea. I'll take you out there. Bigfoot doesn't charge a dime. It's free. <laughs> and you'll, you know, we'll have a real Bigfoot encounter. How's that, grab? Yeah,
2: gets? we we have just the location.
1: Absolutely. And the only thing you need to bring is an extra pair of underwear. <laughs> if you make it that far. That's right. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's it's just kind of uh, a and, and you know, Again, we're getting a little off topic here, but I think with the internet and uh, information age, there's a lot of nonsense out there, but there's also a ton of new information coming out, people coming forward, sightings, and I think the the genie's coming out of the bottle here.
2: There's a lot of people. I mean, like, you know, we did a two-part show with um, Bill Munns and all of that stuff about the film, but the point of this particular show is bob gimlin's interview and what he had to say so i I think um you know you can you can do a lot of checking around and there's nothing but you know information about how honest a guy he is take it for what it is folks i think we can wrap this up pretty soon tom unless you have some other comments
1: no that's it i just want to i want to say one more thing about bob gimlin sure uh you can take a read on him or anybody And just use your intuition when you're looking at this guy you can you just get uh, he just exudes integrity and honesty he really does yeah he certainly
2: does all right time i think we'll wrap that up folks so uh you know stay tuned for the weekly show on saturday
0: thanks for listening to this episode of creek
2: devil if you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures